before we move boldly onward. Let us pause to hear the breathing of those around us, to feel their presence in this room, to know their presence in our lives. Let us pause to consider the trees, their branches stripped bare, their elegant architecture on display. Let us pause to feel the spirit of love that ties us to each other, that winds its way through our very bones and settles in our hearts. Before we move forward, armed with resolutions that will shortly be forgotten in the day-to-day -day of living, let us notice what it is that remains every year, every day. What exists beyond schedules and months, beyond time? It welcomes us to life, not just at the start of the year, but every day. And it welcomes us to song. Washington Ethical Society. My name is Susan Runner, and I'm so glad you're here this morning. And if you are not here and joining us on Facebook, I hope you are having a good time with us as well. Visitors and guests, we hope you get a blue name tag so that we can welcome you. 
We love talking about why this community is important to us. We would like to hear from you what you're looking for in a community as well. We hope you will all join us after platform for cookies and coffee and tea in the social hall and out in the lobby. Also, please consider filling out the gold sheet if you are new with your uh, contact information and please place it in the collection basket when it passes. I want to remind you to silence your dinglings this morning so we can <laughs> I was a that was a uh, electronic dinglings this morning though we <laughs> it goes worse now just silence your electronic devices please that would be nice and if you could check in on social media and now I invite Ross Wells oh and Jason Weinfeld to read our statement of purpose so that we may share and hear our shared values. The Washington Ethical Society is a humanistic congregation that affirms the worth of every person. We strive through our relationships to elicit the best in human spirit. With faith in, hu with faith in human goodness, we appreciate each person's unique capacities. We joyfully celebrate together and support each other through life. We nurture a sense of reverence and responsibility for each other and the earth. We invite you to join our community of children and adults as we work for a world where love and justice crosses all borders. Cross all borders. Uh, Jason and Ross, along with me and several other people, are members of our Global Connections Committee who will be holding an information session after both platforms today. May we kindle within us the warmth of compassion, the light of understanding, and the fire of commitment to build a brighter future for all. chime in solidarity with people around the world. Today, we are particularly mindful of federal workers who are facing financial challenges because of the continuing government shutdown. As we listen to the chime, let us remember our connection with each other and the world around us. Let us hold in our hearts all that hurts in the world. And let us commit to ourselves to all that calls for our work and our love. I invite you now into a time of meditation. Get comfortable in your chairs. Close your eyes if you wish.
This morning we gather for, for the first time in a new year. Take a moment to center yourself. Breathe in and out. This morning we will think about regret and possibility. We will look backward and forward. Right now in this moment, I invite you to just be here. Breathe in and out. Right now in this moment, how does your body feel? Take a moment to notice. Breathe in and out. Right now in this moment, what thoughts are you having? Notice them and let them by. Breathe in and out. Right now, in this moment, what emotions are you feeling? Notice them and welcome them. Breathe in and out. Right now, in this moment, breathe.
Thank you so much for that beautiful song. I think for many of us that um, song, particularly the words in it, are the, the lullaby we wish we had had as children. <laughs> um, if perhaps we were not lucky enough to grow up in a family where we were told that in fact anything was possible. Anyone we wanted to be or came to love any way we held ourselves. And I love that song for the way that it offers that beautiful invitation. Anything is possible for us. We are looking at the theme of possibility this month in January, and of course it seems like perfect timing for that as we enter into a new year. Um, Perhaps you, like many folks in America, have been thinking about New Year's resolutions uh, at this time of year, or perhaps um, one-word intentions, which seem to be all the rage, and we're going to come back to that later in our platform. I think, too, about the omens at the beginning of the year. My family, I think sort of based on our Jewish um, background, but kind of somehow lost in translation, we have a, um, a tradition of making sure that the first thing that you eat on New Year's Day is sweet. I think it comes from the Rosh Hashanah New Year experience within the Jewish tradition of apples and honey, something sweet for the New Year. But we um, just switched it up to January 1st and um, made it waffles. So, you know, that's okay too. Leftover Christmas candy, you know, a mint. The first fortune cookie that you open obviously has great uh, portent for the year to come. The first picture you take on the phone, the first song you hear on the radio, the new year holds for many of us that sense of promise, of renewal, of possibility. The idea of making choices about how we want to be and somehow making them in a definitive way, you know, my New Year's resolution written in stone. 
But what about when the possibilities overwhelm us? How do we handle the choices that come at us every day, all day? I remember when I was planning my wedding, um, we talked about getting married where my parents live in upstate New York, and we ended up getting married here in D.C. because that's where we lived, and it seemed so much easier to be able to manage it locally. Um, and and it, there were many things about it that were incredibly meaningful for us. And, you know, the D.C. area has so many cake vendors. Do you know how many cake vendors there are in D.C.? And I thought to myself, maybe if I had decided to go with upstate New York, you know, there's only like five people that make cakes in that area, right? The little village where my parents live. They may not be great cakes, but at least you only have to try five of them and then you're done. <clears throat> the idea of decision fatigue is one that I at least resonate with deeply. The decisions that come at me all the time, all throughout the day, all the possibilities. Those of you who are parents of young children know that summer camp time is starting. I just take a moment, if you're not a parent of a young child, to think about us with sadness. Um, summer camp time is starting and you have to figure it all out. You've got to get your Excel spreadsheet and your calendar. And, and um, if DC has a lot of cake vendors, I, I don't even have a word for how many summer camps there are. <clears throat> there have been a number of studies about decision fatigue, and actually one of the sort of landmark ones came out of the Israeli prison system. A group of researchers looked at um, the parole board in the prison system, <clears throat> and this doesn't particularly, it just happened to be in Israel, it doesn't have anything particular to do with that system. I believe it would probably be the same anywhere. So they looked at the parole board and um, how uh, judgments came out on the parole board, how decisions were made, and, and whether there was a pattern to it. <clears throat> and uh, studied, you know, thousands of people coming forward to the parole board seeking parole. And they found that there was a pattern to who was granted parole and who wasn't granted parole. And it didn't have anything to do, surprisingly, with the crimes committed or even the race or ethnicity of the person coming forward. It had to do with the time of day they saw the parole board. Those who were seen in the morning were far more likely to be granted parole for their case to be considered fully and completely, and then a decision made that was, that was outside the norm, right? Parole is a not staying with the status quo decision. It's a new choice. They were far more likely to be granted parole than if they were seen later in the day. And the people seen at the end of the day were almost never granted parole. The judges weren't able to make that big decision, right? to grant parole. They saw this pattern over thousands of people being seen by the parole board. Another study was done in America around that same idea of decision fatigue, this one in a shopping mall, uh, so much less life or death. Um, people were given math problems in a shopping mall. They were invited to solve as many math problems as they wanted to, right? And uh, now you may be thinking, I don't want to solve any math problems, actually, but you know, they, they were, these were pretty easy math problems, and they were, they, were, they were told, you know, just solve as many as you want to. Just keep going, you know, until you feel, don't feel like solving math problems anymore. The longer, the longer that people had shopped, 
the longer they had been engaging in the decision-making process of shopping, right? You go into a store, you try something on, do I like it, do I not like it, do I want to buy it, is it too expensive, can I afford it, da 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 The longer they had been making those little decisions in the shopping process, the fewer math problems they wanted to engage with, right? The fewer they were able to engage with. They just, they stopped, right? It's too hard, I just, I, I, I can't handle it right now. And I think that many of us have that experience, right? You know, by the end of the day, you can barely figure out what you want to have for dinner. That's why supposedly you, you plan out your weekly meals on Sunday evening. I don't know. If you do that, please feel free to send me an email with what my weekly meals should be. That would be great. I think there are a lot of folks who have found ways to combat decision fatigue. I think often of Steve Jobs' black turtlenecks. So he actually spoke about the fact that he chose to wear the same thing every day because it was one less decision to have to make. I find um, that that's one of the ways that I can actually get myself to the gym. I always feel great when I exercise, but if I don't do it first thing, if it's not just part of my day, like I just get up and go, um, and in fact, it's not even doing it first thing, I have to put my workout clothes on in the morning. Um, I can't get dressed in any other clothing because I will never then put workout clothes on over the course of the rest of the day. I have to get immediately into workout clothes, and then I feel dumb if I don't go because I'm wearing workout clothes, you know? Um, so all of these things that we can do to help us with decision fatigue. There's actually a concept out of economics called meta-rules. You may have heard of. It got a little traction recently in popular press when two economists wrote a book um, about eating using meta rules. Now, I am actually not a real fan of um, connecting weight loss and New Year's resolutions. Um, so, uh, but I think that the concept from these economists goes beyond, um, goes beyond eating. The concept on a high level is that rather than making decision by decision, little decisions all throughout the day, we apply meta rules to how we engage in the world, right? I will never have the caffeine. This is a good one for me. I will never have caffeine after 3 p.m., right? That's a meta rule that helps me decide whether to have that cup of regular tea at 3.40 or not. It's a good meta rule I discover at 2 in the morning often. <laughs> it's not apparently a well-followed meta rule, but it's a good meta rule. And we use meta rules actually in moral choices often as well. We will never kill. That's a good meta rule. You should definitely follow that in your personal life. We can also use them in smaller ways. Always tip well, a meta rule. Always give your seat up on a bus to someone who looks like they could use it. I think even with those meta moral rules, there is an experience that many of us may be having these days of a kind of moral decision fatigue, a moral exhaustion. I've been reflecting a lot on the experience of this community and the nation in general two years ago, and the experience of the community and the mood of the nation now. Two years ago, the general feel was one of concern but commitment, sort of um, uh, excitement about the resistance and being part of it. 
And what I often experience myself now and hear from you is tiredness. That the barrage of bad news, the policies that harm people that you love, that harm you yourself, one more animal on the endangered species list, one step closer to more border wall, one more identity erased from federal documentation. We are tired, and it can be difficult to know how to respond, what to respond to. I sometimes wear a stole when I'm at public action events to show that I'm a clergy person, which is uh, often a helpful reminder for folks. And um, a couple of, about two years ago, I um, decided to just keep one in a Ziploc bag in my car. <laughs> because at any moment, it felt as though there might be an action at the White House, right? It's 3 o'clock, and there might be one at 4.30. And if I could make it down, well, the reality, of course, is that we cannot respond to every ask for our personal engagement. And I think it's been hard for many of us to figure out then where to respond, right? How to choose the thing that we'll be able to show up for. I know some folks who have used essentially meta rules in making those decisions a kind of way of shaping a personal mission statement for themselves. One person I know decided that she would respond only to those things where people's lives were currently in danger. So there may be many bad policies out there, and there are some where people are currently in uh, personal harm, harm, risk to personal harm. Others might choose to focus their energy on threats to LGBTQ Americans, or threats to non-citizens in our country, or threats to black and brown people. The truth is that none of us are able to respond to everything, nor can we respond in every way. I read an article recently, um, just posted actually by Deepa Iyer um, at medium.com. And Iyer talks about, um, about that challenge of trying to figure out how to respond to everything around us. She writes, sustaining high levels of outrage, constant vigilance, and short-term cycles of rapid response is unrealistic and unhealthy for us as individuals and community members and as organizations and movements. At the same time, becoming numb, accepting what's happening as the new normal or relying on spurts of self-care are not long-term options either. Iyer goes on to talk about multiple roles that we might play in engaging in the world around us. And I loved her framing of this. I think often we look out there at what someone else is doing, right? Some work someone else is taking on, and we imagine, or at least I do, why can't I be like that person, 
right? I do that actually with a whole lot of things in my life. I, I think the pinnacle was when um, I really was trying to wish I could emulate someone else's um, ministry, the way they embodied their ministry. They play the guitar almost every time they preach, and I thought it was so cool and really wanted to be able to do that. I unfortunately do not play the guitar. And, and thought maybe I should rethink uh, right, who I was and who I could be. And Ayer really um, speaks to that idea. She talks about several roles that we might play in engaging in the world around us. Frontline responders, so people that are providing um, support, direct services that can mobilize quickly uh, and immediately. Healers, people that are helping to heal rifts within ourselves and in the community. Community storytellers and artists. People that are drawing and imagining new worlds for us, telling our own myths and stories over and over again. Natural bridge builders. Folks that are able to take people in different places on the spectrum and help them to come together in some way, right? Proud disruptors. Folks who get right out in the face of things, in the middle of the action, putting themselves out there to disrupt the norm. And visionaries who can help to hold the possibility in front of us, the world that might exist. Not all of us, Ayer writes, can or should play each of those roles. An effective movement ecosystem requires different actors to play these roles. We might also find ourselves falling into different roles depending on personal and external circumstances. Or we might be observers and supporters from the side from time to time. That idea of figuring out our particular role in any given moment was a helpful one because it reminds me that I don't have to be all the things, right? I don't have to carry every single one of those roles. And in fact, I really probably can't. I can't play guitar, and I'm better at some of those roles than other ones. And perhaps you are too. Figuring out the role that suits us best, narrowing our personal mission statement to the issue that we will respond to most deeply. That can help us with the decision fatigue we find around us. It also means we need to build our capacity to be okay with the possibilities we didn't pursue, the roles we didn't take on, the chances we didn't take. That is, I think, the flip side of possibility, regret. You know, there's a sort of idea in America, or at least maybe in Hallmark or something, that we should live without regret. Edith Piaf, of course, sang it most beautifully in French. No, je ne regrette rien. I regret nothing. All the things in my life brought me to this moment, she sings. I think, though, that most of us live with some amount of regret or at least awareness of the doors that have closed in our lives. 
I actually resist the narrative of big choices, of the idea that there are before us huge forking paths in our lives. I don't know how many of you see are watching The Good Place, but I now can't say forking without sounding like I'm actually swearing. I really meant paths that fork people, like with a, you know, divergent, divergent paths. I resist the narrative of divergent paths, the idea that we have, you know, one big choice that makes a difference for all time, although certainly those do exist at times for us. But more often, I think we face many little choices. That's why it's so tiring, right? Many different paths. One thing I have learned is that there's no such thing as settled and done. Like now, when this has been reached, when this person has joined the team, or when this relationship is ready or when I've gotten this job, now everything will be calm or different or healthy or ready. (laughs) That would be nice, wouldn't it? (laughs) But instead, we find ourselves with more choice points, more possibilities, different ways of being in the world, and also more choices not taken, more possibilities not explored. I think a healthier approach to regret is to notice our regrets, to acknowledge them, to acknowledge the possibilities we didn't pursue, and also to acknowledge the possibilities that we pursued for a time and then went a different way. This seems to be a season of transitions at West right now, including on staff, most recently, of course, Zeb, our clergy intern, let us know that he is called to return to the border rather than finishing his time with us. As I was reading that um, article by Deepa Ayer, I thought to myself, oh, Zeb has figured out his role. (laughs) He is the proud disruptor. He's chuckling. I I think that's right. And I... I love that. There's such beauty and power in claiming who we are meant to be. And it also has me thinking about the idea of sort of unfinished time, which is also at the same time finished and complete in its own way, successful. I think think about that concept in many parts of my life personal transitions, work transitions, community transitions. I think we are, as a, as a broad society, we sort of like to say that if something didn't reach what we expected to be its completion, then it failed in some way. And, and in reality, right, it had its own kind of completion, of finishing. There's a poem that has helped me to think about that concept. It was written by Jack Gilbert um, on the subject of divorce, actually. But I think that it speaks equally well to the end of a friendship, the end of a working relationship, about any possibilities that are considered incomplete, but that have their own beauty within them. 
The poem is called Failing and Flying, and again, it's by Jack Gilbert. Everyone forgets that Icarus also flew. It's the same when love comes to an end or the marriage fails and people say they knew it was a mistake, that everybody said it would never work, that she was old enough to know better. But anything worth doing is worth doing badly. Like being there by that summer ocean on the other side of the island while love was fading out of her, the stars burning so extravagantly those nights that anyone could tell you they would never last. Every morning she was asleep in my bed like a visitation, the gentleness in her like antelope standing in the dawn mist. Each afternoon, I watched her coming back through the hot, stony field after swimming, the sea light behind her and the huge sky on the other side of that. Listen to her while we ate lunch. How can they say the marriage failed? Like the people who came back from Provence when it was Provence and said it was pretty, but the food was greasy. I believe Icarus was not failing as he fell, but just coming to the end of his triumph. Coming to the end of his triumph. I love that image of Icarus. Icarus is the, I realize I should have said this before the poem, the, <laughs> the, the um, Greek figure who uh, made wax wings to be able to fly. He flew too close to the sun and the wax melted and he plummeted to his death. But as the poem tells us, he flew first. Perhaps as you look back at 2018, there are parts of your life where you can claim that you flew first to see the beauty of that triumph. Some possibilities indeed are lost, some doors closing are coming to the end of our triumph and moving then into a new one. So back to the new year and all those resolutions and goals. As you might probably guess, since I don't believe in those big forking choices, See what I did there? <laughs> I'm not really one for big resolutions either, right? For the now my life will be different kind of resolutions. They've never worked for me anyway, except for getting up and putting my workout clothes on. We've now learned that that was successful. What I have liked this year is the idea of one-word intentions, which seem to have caught on in the Facebook community at least. They aren't about succeeding at something in particular. They aren't really about making a radically new choice or, or creating one particular goal, but rather about how we engage in the world around us. I like that idea of the how because the truth is we actually can't control what will come at us this year in our own lives, in the world around us, in our community, we cannot control 
what will arrive in our lives. We can set an intention for how we will greet it, how we will try to move through the space. Some of the words that folks have chosen that particularly spoke to me included audacity, balance, abundance, liberation, connection, enough. And so this morning, I want to invite you to take just a moment to think of a word. Don't overthink it. See what bubbles up to the surface right away. Take a moment right now to imagine what your one word might be for 2019. Now, often on the first Sunday in January, we write down an intention of some kind. But because I've invited you to think of one word, I'm hopeful that you may remember it without writing it down. But what I want you to do, if you care to, is to turn to your neighbor and simply share what that word is. And if you don't have a word ready yet, you can just say under construction. If you will, turn towards your neighbor and share your word for 2019. So in my imagining, in my imagining of that moment, you actually were saying one word to each other. <laughs> I did not think about this community when I imagined that moment. When you go out into the lobby after our platform service, you'll find on a table to your left as you walk out some small pieces of paper and markers. If you'd like to write down your word and even draw a little around it or embellish it in whatever way you might like so that you might put that word on your bulletin board or your mirror or in your day planner or on a pile on your desk that you'll sort through in March and suddenly think, oh yeah, I had that word. That's a nice idea. That's good too, whatever. Whatever works to set an intention for how we are in the world, the life, the year to come. Little possibilities all around us. One way to be as we encounter them.
May it be a year of intention for you. is the time. Is the time for you to share a reflection on today's platform. If you'd like to say a few words, please raise your hand and I'll bring the microphone so that you can share. <laughs> 